Good morning. Thrilled about the news of our new youth pastor, Micah Spansel. Thank you for affirming the elders' uh, recommendation of him. Uh, we're excited for him to get here. We have to wait a little while, but it will come. Anyway, thank you for participating in that and for praying for it. Continue to pray. We appreciate it. If you take your Bibles, turn along with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. What is your problem? Seems a little aggressive to begin with. What is your greatest problem that you're facing? What is your biggest challenge in life right now? Maybe it's your finances. Inflation is real and it hurts. Maybe it's your marriage struggling. Maybe it's another relationship that seems broken and beyond repair. Maybe it's a wayward son or daughter that breaks your heart. Maybe it's your health. Maybe you've recently received news that you hoped you'd never hear. Maybe it's an ongoing chronic battle that you have with your health. What is your biggest problem in life? Well, without wanting at all to minimize the reality of the problems we face of living in a fallen world with health concerns and financial concerns and relationship problems, without minimizing all of that, I have good news to share today that God has already solved your greatest problem. In the area of your greatest need, God has already met it fully. My hope today is that you would gain a fresh perspective on the rest of your problems that are real and that hurt and that exist and that some of them aren't going away in this lifetime, but that you would gain a fresh perspective on the reality that God has already solved your greatest problem. And he's done so perfectly, completely, entirely. Join with me as I read the gospel from Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. The apostle Paul continues writing and he says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross." When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. 
This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for your word, for its great and precious promises. Thank you that these are all ours in Christ Jesus. That we receive them only by faith, believing that you are good to your word. And that you are good to us through your son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for paying the price for all our sins, for securing our forgiveness through your substitutionary death on the cross. Thank you for taking our place, taking our guilt, taking our sin all on yourself so that we could, through spiritual union with you by faith, have your righteousness imparted to us. Thank you, Jesus. Show us that our greatest need has been met. Our greatest problem has been solved. And the greatest blessing we could ever receive has already been given. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to see together this morning from this passage three glorious results that have come to us through the cross of Christ. Three reasons for the believer's continuous praise is another way to say it. Three glorious results that have come to us through the cross of Christ. First of all, we see that through the cross, we, the spiritually dead, have been made to live again. Have been given life. Look at verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Paul explains here in verse 13 that the Colossian believers, he's writing to believers, were formerly spiritually dead. This is the common condition of every person outside of Jesus Christ. We are all born into this world physically alive but spiritually dead. That is our natural condition from the very beginning of life. To be spiritually dead is to be spiritually lifeless. It is to be unresponsive to God and to his word. A corpse is, by definition, dead. Tracking with me? Does that make sense? Have you ever seen a living corpse? They don't exist, right? That's an oxymoron. A corpse is, by its very nature, dead. That means it is unresponsive to outside stimulus. Outside stimuli cannot affect it. It cannot move. It cannot be quickened. It cannot dodge. It can't do anything. And that was our spiritual condition. Spiritually speaking, unbelievers are the walking dead. Spiritual corpses animated with physical life, but with no spiritual life. And the two realities that influenced and caused our spiritual death were our transgressions and the uncircumcision of our flesh. That's what Paul says there. These two realities describe both our condition, our nature, and the actions that result from our condition. Our spiritual condition is described as the uncircumcision of your flesh. You may recall last week that we looked at this, that Paul has talked about spiritual circumcision. 
spiritual circumcision. That the Colossian believers were once spiritually uncircumcised, but now they have been spiritually circumcised. That is, they have been initiated into the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ. They have experienced a spiritual circumcision. And that has taken them away from their former condition of spiritual uncircumcision. Before we came to Christ, we were spiritually uncircumcised. We were separate, separate, separate from God. We were ruled by our flesh, our fallen humanness, and Adam, our father. This was our condition. We were spiritually uncircumcised, separated from God, and ruled by our flesh, our sinful flesh. And it's the common condition of every human being outside of Christ. It's what we're all born into. And from this fundamental spiritual condition of being spiritually uncircumcised flow our sinful actions that so dominated our lives. Our transgressions, Paul says. To transgress is to take a wrong step. It's to step over a line. It's to step outside of God's law. To transgress is to break God's clear commandments. God has told us, both internally through our conscience and externally through his divine revelation of his law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, He has told us what is good and what is right and what is holy and what he requires of us. But we have transgressed his law. And the result is we are spiritually dead, spiritually lifeless, incapable of responding to God and incapable of pleasing him and incapable of remedying the situation. Now that's the bad news. But thankfully, there's more to the story. The good news is that at the very time when we were spiritually dead in the uncircumcision of our flesh and in all of our transgressions, God intervened on our behalf and he made us alive with Christ. How did God do this? How did God take us from being dead to giving us life? He did this together with him, that is, together with Christ. God has united us spiritually to Christ so that when Christ was raised from the dead, we too were raised to new life with him so that the resurrection he experienced, we experience. We are so united with Jesus that our life, is now hidden with Christ in God. We are united with Christ in his death. We are united with Christ in his resurrection. And so being dead, when Christ rose from the grave, we were raised with him to life everlasting. Look back with me at verse 12. We've already seen how Paul used circumcision spiritually as a metaphor for our being 
separate and apart from God and ruled by our fleshly desires. Well, he also used baptism, immersion, as a metaphor for our union with Christ. Verse 12, having been buried with Christ in baptism, a spiritual baptism, our being immersed into Christ in union with him, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So we're united with Christ in his resurrection. And that is how we came to have spiritual life. God has made us alive together with Christ. Praise God that through faith in Jesus Christ, we are not dead anymore. Praise God that now through union with Jesus Christ, the very power that raised Christ from the dead and that has given us spiritual life is now active inside of us as Christ is in us indwelling the believer, imparting to us the very power of life over death. We've been raised to new life in Jesus Christ. We've been spiritually baptized into Christ, raised to new life, and we are now spiritually circumcised, identifying us with the people of God and removed our spiritual bondage to our fallen fleshly desires. But that's just the beginning. Look how detailed Paul gets into this. That brings us to the second reality. Through the cross, our spiritual debt has been canceled. Not only have we gone spiritually from death unto life, but our spiritual debt has been canceled. This comes at the end of verse 13 as well as verse 14. Paul says, having forgiven us all our transgressions there at the end of verse 13. All our transgressions have been forgiven. Anybody here believe that? Do you realize what that means? None of us really understands the true scope and magnitude of our forgiveness Because we can't possibly understand the true scope and magnitude of our transgressions. Our sins are far more numerous than we can possibly comprehend. They are far more grievous and far more serious than we can possibly comprehend. We're masters at minimizing our sin, at forgetting our sins, at failing to take our sins seriously. But God, God never minimizes sin. Our transgressions in life number not in the hundreds and not in the thousands, but in the hundreds of thousands. I mean, if you just do the math, just do a little math. Think about it. What, what's the number of sins we might commit in a day as Christians? Maybe 10? That's probably low, isn't it? Don't you think that's probably low? It's probably low, but let's say it's 10. If you live to be 70 years old, that's like 250,000 transgressions in your lifetime. 
The reality is our sins typically run way over 10 per day. Certainly as Christians, much less when we were unbelievers and maybe didn't care. Every sinful thought, every unrighteous motive, every sinful word, every complaint. And that's just the sins of commission. That says nothing of the sins of omission, failing to do what God has commanded us. Failing to be thankful as we ought, failing to trust God as we ought, failing to praise God as we were created to. It's not hard to think that we could hit over a million transgressions in our lifetime. But the promise of the Bible is, and the promise of this verse is, that your transgressions, all of them, have been forgiven in Christ. The word forgiven here is based on the Greek word for grace. The idea is that someone is acting graciously toward us and instead of giving us what our misdeeds truly deserve, they instead have granted us forgiveness as a gift. And that's just what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. By His grace, not according to what we deserve, God has forgiven us all our transgressions. And not just one of our transgressions, not just a lot of our transgressions, not most of our transgressions, but all of our transgressions. Aren't you thankful for God's forgiving grace this morning? By his grace, you are forgiven, forgiven of all your sins, sins of the past, forgiven, sins of the present, forgiven, sins yet future, forgiven, all under the blood of Jesus Christ. God forgave us, Paul continues, by canceling out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. Wow, now what is this? Paul's using another metaphor here, this time a legal and financial metaphor. There was a certificate of debt, which was a statement of accounts showing that we were in the red, spiritually speaking. We were spiritually bankrupt, spiritually guilty of crimes. Because of our sin, we were spiritually in debt to God, and there was absolutely no way for us to pay it. But God took this debt that we owed, and he has canceled it out. The word that is used there speaks of blotting out a written list, erasing it, wiping it clean, Clearing the books of what was owed. This is what God has done for us. He has wiped clean our spiritual debt. The list containing all of our spiritual crimes has been completely erased. And we are forgiven. Hallelujah, what a Savior. You see, God's law is perfect holy, and good. God's law consists, as we've seen this morning even, of his commands that we're to obey. It tells us what we're to do. It tells us what we're not to do. When we sin and we fail to do what God has commanded or when we do what God has forbidden us, another sin is entered into the books. 
The Ten Commandments summarize God's law for us. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. You shall not murder. You'll have no other gods before me. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain and so forth. And whenever we sin, our sins are fully seen by the Lord. And each sin is recorded as an infinite debt. Not the totality, not just the totality of the sins is an infinite debt, but each sin comprises in and of itself an infinite debt against a holy God. And you put all of these debts of sin together, and what you have is a mountain of debt, impossible to pay back. No way you can claw yourself out of that hole. These decrees against us, Paul says, were hostile to us. They were dogging us. They were chasing us, hounding us, demanding our death. The wrath of God, the just wrath of God, a holy and righteous God who must judge sin was hanging over our heads, just waiting to befall us and bring about ultimate justice for us, and that is our eternal conscious punishment in hell. But God. But God has blotted out our list of debts and charges that were against us. That debt we could never pay back, God has blotted out, erased it. There's no hint or trace of any of it left you believe that, church? We've got it made. Do you realize how good we have it? How blessed we are in Christ. The debt we could never pay back, God has blotted out. He has erased our sins, wiped them away completely. But notice it's, it gets even better. This certificate of debt has not only been blotted out and erased... But notice that Paul says that it's also been taken out of the way. It's been completely removed. The ledger book doesn't even exist anymore. There's not an accounting of your sins that's being made and, and logbooks being covered of your life and your failures and your transgressions. No, it's, it's been taken away. It's been removed. And it's no longer an obstacle in our approach to the Lord. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, our sins are gone and removed from sight. I love what the Old Testament says about this truth. This wasn't just new in the New Testament, right? This is the way God has always graciously responded to his people and their faith. Isaiah 38, 17 says, For you, God, have cast all my sins behind your back. How's your back looking today? Well, you don't know unless you happen to look in a mirror or you know, ask somebody to you know, check out, make sure everything's okay back there. Point is, you can't see it. It's, you don't have eyes in the back of your head. God has cast all my sins behind his back. He can't see them. It's as though they don't exist. 
Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far God has removed our transgressions from us. Hallelujah. How far is the east from the west? Infinitely far. You can't get there from here. They're gone. Micah 7.19, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Think about the deepest, darkest sea. That's where your sins have been cast. Well, they have submarines and uh, they're going to deeper and deeper. That's not the point. Don't overthink this. The point is they're irrecoverable. They are cast overboard, never to be seen again or heard from. You and I will, as Christians with faith in Jesus Christ, will never answer for our sins. Do you believe that? For Christ is the answer. Christ has answered for all of them. He took the full penalty of our sins in himself on the cross. And we stand now by faith in Christ forgiven. So our sins are not only wiped clean from the record books, but the very books themselves have been taken away and removed. You can't even find the books that were erased. This is how thoroughly our sins have been forgiven. Our sins, all of them, have been blotted out and taken away forever. This is the completeness of our forgiveness and our salvation. How did God do it? How were our sins taken away? Paul says, by being nailed to the cross of Jesus. When the Romans crucified someone, they would not only hang them on the cross, but they would often nail a small board to the cross, oftentimes above their heads, that would have a list of the crimes that the crucified person was guilty of. So murderer, thief. In Jesus' case, remember what they wrote? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Paul picks up on this well-known practice and says that our sins, which were forgiven, have been forgiven by having been nailed to the cross. So it's as though as Jesus was dying there on the cross, every one of my sins was put on a board above Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, became the embodiment of all of our sin and our guilt, and he bore the wrath of God that our sins deserved in our place. These were not sins he had committed, for he was sinless. Jesus took our sins upon himself and suffered in our place. Our sins, every one of them, were paid for by the Lord Jesus on the cross. And so our sins have been totally taken away from us, having been nailed to the cross. Jesus would cry out from the cross to Telestai. It is finished. Paid in full. What a great salvation. But there's more. Thirdly. 
Rejoice that through the cross, our spiritual enemies have been triumphed over. Look with me at verse 15. When he, God, had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. At the cross, through Jesus' death, God was disarming the rulers and authorities. Rulers and authorities have been mentioned several times in this book already. In chapter 2 and verse 10, Christ is said to be head over all rule and authority. In chapter 1 and verse 16, Christ is said to be the creator of all rulers and authorities. Now, who are these rulers and authorities? Well, as we've seen in each of these instances, Paul is referring to the spiritual realm of created beings, angels, and in particular, evil angels, demons, including Satan. These unseen angelic beings intent upon evil and harm have ranks and positions. They are here called rulers and authorities, and these rulers and authorities God has now disarmed. He's removed their fangs and removed their claws, as it were. Paul's using a very well-known Roman custom here and a civic spectacle as a metaphor, another metaphor, to describe the fullness of Christ's victory over his enemies. The picture here is of the Roman triumph, a real historical Reality. After a Roman general and his army had returned home to Rome, victorious over their enemies, a huge celebration would be planned. And part of that celebration would be the triumph. A triumphal entry through the Roman streets into the center of Rome. And the Roman general and his army would march in, parade through the streets of Rome with representatives from their conquered foes marching before them, often even including the king and his generals. Humiliated, they would be paraded before the crowds of cheering Romans. The victorious general would ride oftentimes in a golden chariot drawn by four horses, often with either a trusted servant or his youngest son riding in that chariot alongside him. He'd be dressed in his finest attire with a purple and gold toga, causing him to stand out and look like royalty. He would have red boots, and sometimes his face would be painted red in honor of their highest god in the Roman pantheon, Jupiter. On his head would be placed a victory crown of laurels. This general, in this triumph, was in effect king for a day. King for the duration of the triumphal celebration. And in the eyes of the Romans, he was close to being a god. This well-known Roman spectacle stands behind Paul's description here in chapter 2 and verse 15. And with that in mind, let me read it again. Chapter 2, verse 15. And when God had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Paul uses this metaphor, this triumph, this Roman triumph elsewhere. In 2 Corinthians 2.14, he says... 
Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Similar idea, but with victory being the emphasis in Romans 8.35. We read this. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. It looks as though we're dying. It looks as though we're weak. It looks as though we're defeated. Verse 37, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here in Colossians 2.15, Paul says that when Christ had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through his cross. Now the pronoun translated as through him could also be translated as through the cross. And this is, I think, the most likely antecedent to the pronoun there, the cross. It was through the cross. Christ and God through Christ disarmed and triumphed over his enemies through the cross. This is the great irony of the cross of Jesus Christ, is it not? What appeared to be the darkest hour and the moment of greatest defeat for Christ was actually the very moment of his greatest victory. The cross that appeared to be the instrument of death and defeat was actually the very instrument of life and triumph. When Jesus was stripped bare and appeared to be disarmed fully at the cross, he was actually, in fact, disarming his enemies. Here again we see the glorious reality of the cross and the crown. I love our new church name. The cross of Christ's suffering guaranteed the crown of Christ's triumph. Beloved, we have every reason to rejoice this morning and every morning. We have reason to put our problems in proper perspective and realize that God has already solved our greatest problem. How will he not who gave us his very own son not also freely give us all things with him? He's already given us the greatest gift. He's already provided for our greatest need. He'll help us with all the other things as well. Beloved, we have gone from death to life. We've gone from a debt we could never pay to riches beyond our ability to comprehend. We've gone from defeat and disgrace to victory and triumph and all through faith in Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, rejoice. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. We've been given life. We've been freed from debt. And we have been given victory and triumph. And we ride in that chariot, as it were, right along with our Savior and our victor, Christ Jesus. 
If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or you're not sure you are, ask yourself this. Why would I resist God's gracious offer of forgiveness? To know that all of my transgressions, all of my sin, all of it wiped clear, removed, so that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why would I refuse that? What earthly reason could there be aside from rebellion and spiritual stubbornness? God graciously offers you the gift of forgiveness today through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, and His finished work. And if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the promise of Scripture is you will be saved. You'll be spiritually united with Christ so that the death Christ dies is your death and the resurrection Christ experiences your resurrection. And as Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says, even Christ's ascension, we are united with him and we are seated with him in the heavenly places right now. Such is our union with him. What a glorious gospel. What a gracious plan of salvation. What a wonderful offer available to all today who will believe and trust in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we rejoice in what you've accomplished for us through your cross. You have taken us from death to life, from debt to riches, from defeat to victory and triumph. We can take no credit for any of it. It's all of God's grace. It's all of your perfect work. Ours is but to believe and receive. Thank you, Jesus. I pray for any here who don't know for sure if their sins have been blotted out and forgiven and that record book has been taken away, that they would make sure of that fact today by trusting in Jesus alone. And may the rest of us rejoice, rejoice greatly in the forgiveness that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.